Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we get the inside take from actors, artists, and creators on their work, their career, and the things they obsess about. I'm your host, Connie Guillermo. When Jimmy Wong was a kid, his family went to the theater to see Mulan, the 1998 animated movie about a young woman who disguises herself as a man and joins the Chinese army in place of her elderly father. Wong's grandmother, who grew up in China and knew the folklore of Mulan, left the theater disappointed in the Disney story, which she told him failed to do justice to the legend of this Chinese warrior. Now Wong, an actor, gamer, cook, and YouTube star, is part of the cast bringing a live-action, big-budget remake of Mulan to audiences on September 4th on the Disney Plus streaming service. Wong plays Ling, one of a trio of new recruits who become part of Mulan's squad. I talked to Wong about how he cried a little the first time he saw the final cut of Mulan and how he's immensely proud to be part of a story that does justice to his Chinese heritage. A quick note, because of COVID-19 and shelter in place, our conversation was recorded over the internet. So be prepared if the audio sounds a little bit quirky. I should have started by welcoming you to uh, I'm So Obsessed, and thank you very much. How are you coping with the self-isolation? I know that you put out calls to people on Twitter to do the right thing, stay at home. Mm -hmm. We know the math is showing that it's working. So what are you doing to, to cope with the current situation? I believe I'm in a really privileged and fortunate position as someone that formulated their career to be internet-based to begin with. Uh, when I first came to LA nine years ago, I tried it as an actor and I've had varying amounts of success since then. But the thing that really drew me to doing internet content was the fact that I wasn't seeing that many opportunities otherwise. So for the past nine years, I've done so much from behind my computer screen that being in isolation for me has been fortunately a very um, easy experience to transition into. But I feel like this has been a opportunity for me as well to actually take a break myself after having sort of worked nonstop for the past decade almost. And in it, I've been able to reflect a lot more on a lot of the things that I do online, a lot of the ways I approach the world, maybe ways that I've been extremely hypocritical myself in terms of saying, hey, don't be toxic online, be healthy. But then looking back and realizing, man, the way I engaged with this situation this time or the way I responded to this person really was kind of toxic. So it's, it gives me the breath and the time to see and space to see things in more of a perspective than I had in the past and as the days sort of blend and melt together, you can really easily lose track of time. So I'm very fortunate that I still have enough work and scheduling that I can sort of create a consistent work environment around myself to keep being productive at the very least. You are uh, very productive in terms of your YouTube output, I will point out. And for people who don't know, uh, you have starred in um, a very popular web series uh, that I believe your brother co-created yes. uh, video game high school three seasons of that it's all on youtube and you can watch it what was the appeal working on that project aside from your brother yeah <laughs> i mean obviously brother. working with family in a close collaborative creative project is a dream come true a lot of times i mean a stark contrast is i just got off finishing disney's mulan but in comparison to doing a homebrewed web series with my brother that was crowdfunded by their supporters on kickstarter and indiegogo being a small cog in a giant machine, which is a huge movie like Mulan, feels so different 
than being able to walk right up to the director and be like, hey, I want this and be able to talk to them directly and have a very sort of like honest and cut to the chase conversation. And that was like a lot of the experience I had on video game high school, which is I get to work with my best friends as close collaborators. I get to hear from them their direct creative process and have what I felt was a lot of input improvisationally as well as as an actor into creating and making a role that was also in a lot of ways sort of custom fit and tailored for me as an actor. So that was a really magical experience. It's something that I will always hold true and dear to my heart. And it's something that I also, you know, through the lens of that, I get to look at other productions and understand from that perspective, why certain things need to run the way they do. For someone like me that likes to put on a lot of hats, being able to work in that capacity with my brother was really rewarding as well. Uh, Video game uh, high school is now sort of a cult uh, favorite. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's not that old. It's only in the past few years. What do you think about that story, which is about kids who are, they're not superheroes, but they're like expert video gamers who all get together, right? And you play one of the video game experts. Um, Mm -hmm. Why do you think that resonated so much? Why has it become a cult? Uh, There's so many parts of the show that are really something else and ahead of its time. We were making a show about esports essentially before the current boom of teams in high school and colleges now. It was called Video Game High School, but there were no teams in high schools at the time we made it that were playing video games. Um, The writers have such an amazing sense of humor as well. They were fans of shows like Gilmore Girls. They loved Buffy. They loved stuff that really wore its heart on its sleeve and was able to convey emotions in a way that was unabashed and unashamed. And I think for people that are watching it, that's a very direct human connection that you feel with these characters. Because even though, you know, they are all pro video game players, we could have made them all football players, we could have made them all chess leets, you know, we could have done a number of things with what those characters were, but the writers decided that they wanted to go in the direction that they're most passionate about, which is video games and gaming. And as a result, you get to have something that's really truthfully told with a lot of inside jokes and a lot of inside flavor to it that brings the show to life in a way that shows that the people making it are truly passionate about what they're doing. And gaming and sort of the nerd crowd of current day is very discerning as an audience. They'll smell it out immediately if you're saying something that's not right, if something rings false. And Video Game High School by the you know, the proof is in the pudding and the pudding was the writing and the direction and the creative direction of the show. And everyone there really was passionate about what they're doing. And that shows in the end result. And I think the viewers also feel that resonate when they watch the show. And you had some amazing guests. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I mean, the, through virtue of my brother having made so many viral videos over the years, he got to sort of accumulate a bunch of amazing people to guest on the show. You know, we had tons of YouTubers, obviously celebrities from that world, but we also Got to have Zachary Levi in season one and Nathan Kress from iCarly in season three. And we've had cameos from the late, great Stan Lee and having all, and Tony Hawks in season three too, right? Like these, these people that I all watched growing up and loved to death also got to be a part of this project. And Conan O'Brien's on there too. And I think, again, it's just the passion of the creator is really reflected through when they asked these people for it and reached out. And they could also watch the show and realize these aren't just some kids messing around. They're really serious about what they're doing. And as such, as a filmmaker myself, you know, if they're taking it seriously, then there's respect to be had there. It's not the only um, YouTube series you do. You have been on a very popular cooking show, I yeah, guess cooking we'll call show. it, Feast of Fiction, and you just recently released a bunch of your recipes as a book. I am intrigued by the premise, recreating recipes from TV shows and mm-hmm. comic books and movies. Um, I did look at um, 
many of your episodes. I loved the cherry, mini cherry pies in homage to Twin Peaks. Oh, nice. What yeah. gave you the idea to do that? Well, Ashley, my co-host, uh, loves Twin Peaks. I just watched it recently and Showtime actually approached us because they were coming out with a new season, essentially, you know, a, almost decades later, which was insane to me. Uh, I have a lot of respect for the filmmaker as well that makes the show. And it's one of those shows that always has a sort of mysterious viral slash cult following to it that is hard to miss. And there's something about that world that's inherently interesting. And, you know, food and coffee are such a regular part of it. So getting able to do a brand deal and to make a video that paid homage to a show that my co-host truly loved and one that I was fascinated by was something that was really, really interesting to us. So we came up with a bunch of recipes and ideas that really helped encapsulate what I think was the spirit of the show and creating something that is inherently recognizable to fans, but also by itself, which is really important with the recipes we make, very edible. Something you can just eat and make for yourself or give to someone. You don't need to tell them any history about it, but they'll still enjoy it. Are you a good cook? I hope so. <laughs> I'm definitely someone that's very good at following instructions these days. I can, you know, I've, I've spent many hours behind a knife. I've watched myself many different videos about cooking and cooking documentaries and shows. My mom went to culinary school. I learned a lot from her growing up as well. And I think the, the essence of what a good cook is, is someone that's willing to put their heart into soul into a dish and put their heart into soul into the experience of what cooking provides, which is in general, something you're doing ultimately for someone else. Cooking for uh, yourself for just one person is not, <laughs> not a pleasurable experience. Uh, Jimmy Wong, what is your go-to dish? What's the one thing you think you make better than anything else? My mom is from Beijing, China, and one of the cultural dishes that she cooked all the time for us growing up and one that I still love today is simply called fanqie in Chinese or tomato. It's a dish that combines tomato, meat, scrambled eggs, onions, and mushrooms, really anything you want to put into it. It's sort of like a stew, kind of almost like a jambalaya type dish that you would put over rice. And that's something that has always been my comfort food growing up. It's something that I can whip up really quickly. And I know I'm going to like, no matter what, no matter the situation, it's going to warm me up, hopefully evoke a lot of the same feelings I felt growing up eating it, which is comfort, happiness, and all that. You did that video that got you kind of famous back in 2011. Yes. And it was, it was genius. You were great. But the thing that I really loved about it was that you said at the time that you wanted to address the criticism that was being directed toward Asians by this ranter at the UCLA library mm -hmm. with humor, not fight fire with fire. And I thought right. that was great because that is what people in the past have done. Um, obviously, Mel Brooks uh, has done it, and uh, you know, lots of people have approached very complicated issues with humor. And, and I saw that you just did it again recently with yes. a new YouTube video uh, mm -hmm. about I'm not the Chinese virus. So can you talk a little bit about what prompted you to do it and why you felt it was important? And give the audience some context about what we're talking about here. Sure. I am someone that's very busy on social media. I, I keep up on Twitter trends every day. I like to keep my finger on the pulse is how I describe it. Um, I like to know what's going on in general because I think knowledge is power and being informed and staying aware and also sort of trending away from ignorance as much as possible is something I think is going to get me personally through the day 
And I hope to be able to pass that knowledge on to people that I communicate with when I make my content online. And leading up to the quarantine, I saw an uptick in news that made me feel very unsettled. And that uptick in news was incidents of racially charged attacks on Asians across the globe. And the thread was very simple. There was a disease that originated in a country in Asia, in China. And as a result, people needed a place to put their anger and their blame and point a finger um, because of the inconveniences it was causing, because of the fear it was driving in people. And ultimately it manifested in a sort of xenophobic fashion. So when I saw this uptick in racist behavior and attacks against Asians, it was clearly linked to the fact that people wanted to place their anger and blame at someone or something because of this disease that was now spreading globally taking lives and posing what seems like a very scary threat, an invisible threat in a lot of ways. And I think it's incredibly unfair to scapegoat an entire race of people, even if they're not Chinese, if they're any sort of Asian descent, even if they look Asian, to think that you know it's right to go against them, to attack them, to beat them, assault them, tear at them, spit at them, do whatever it is in a public setting. And that to me was very unsettling. It caused me a lot of distress. And when I saw it keep happening and continually happening, I knew that this we were coming upon another point in history where there was a point where I was given an opportunity to say something and there was a, a gap in the conversation that needed to be filled. And for me, the best way I knew how to deal with these sorts of situations was through music. It's something that I've done in the past. It's something I think if you can bring comedy to a situation, bring a little levity, then you can convey a message that may have reached ears that would not have wanted to hear it otherwise. So I decided, um, especially after our president had a series of press conferences where he explicitly referred to the virus as a Chinese virus, that if I didn't say anything soon, it would be something that I would have felt a deep internal sadness that I didn't say anything at all. And so in the matter of one to two days, uh, I wrote a song, I recorded it, I set it all up, I filmed it, I edited it. It's something that, a process I'm really used to doing from making so many YouTube videos back in the day. And I put out a song that basically tried to explain that viruses do not care about your race. They do not care about their origin. Once a virus has become a virus, it is something that we all have to be conscious and wary about. And to spend time scapegoating a race or scapegoating a people or scapegoating a person for for causing something that is beyond their control is one less second you're spending fighting it. It's one less second you're spending doing anything constructive to help build some unity in the world. And to me, it's been abundantly clear that this coronavirus epidemic and pandemic, sorry, not epidemic, is a unique and genuine opportunity for the world to take a breath simultaneously to reflect on things together and to really clearly see a lot of the inequalities and a lot of the dangers that so many people face that we normally wouldn't have highlighted in a way like this. That's a long-winded way to explain a five-minute comedic song about not being called a Chinese virus because I'm a human and I'm clearly much more than that, as are all the people and Asians around the world that may be unfairly labeled because of the way they look. Well, I applaud you for writing that song and it's very funny. You make your point about scapegoating very well and so I appreciate that. I also appreciate that you tap into the neuroses that the world is feeling now about people hoarding toilet paper, which is a point that you make. And uh, I hope that it makes a difference. Um, I want to ask you, you end the song with a joke about you're heading to Costco and you think <laughs> you're going to buy a bidet. Did you buy yes. one? Uh, you have- I, 
I didn't. Uh, uh, my friend did. And I'm still terrified of bidets, by the way. It's, it's a, a foreign feeling, but, you know, based on the testimony of many people, it is a great way to save toilet paper and a great way to clean the areas that need to be cleaned in a sanitary way. And sanitation seems to be pretty important these days. So I'm happy for the purchase. Okay. Wait, why are you terrified of them? You know, it's uh, in the same way that I don't like jumping into a pool. If the temperature is too cold, I'd rather go in one step at a time. I believe a bidet manages to force its way onto you in a much more abrupt and precise manner. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The name of this podcast is I'm So Obsessed. Mm -hmm. What are you obsessed with? Uh, so many things. I think in general, I'm obsessed with gaming still. Uh, video games, board games, social games, all of those things have always been a huge part of my life. And the reason I love them so much is that I think when you play a game, it lets you take yourself and put yourself in a different situation where the rules of life are changed a little bit. You can want to win without feeling bad or feeling like you're being greedy or any of that, right? You can do something that's a little more conniving in the game than you might in real life. And when you exit the game and when you're done playing the game, you can set those feelings and those things aside, the things that you're trying to get out of you and you can grow from it. And I think in life, we're all trying to level up as well. And gaming is one of those things that has always taught me that if you have an opportunity to get better, you can take it and actually get better. You can improve anything you want in your life. It just requires a little bit of persistence, diligence, and execution. So I'm obsessed with gaming. Is there a game you're currently obsessed with? I am currently playing a remake of a game I played a lot as a kid called Final Fantasy VII. Uh, they, in the world of remakes, as we are now in, it's great to see people go back and take a story and adjust it and actually improve upon it graphically, story-wise, all that stuff. And gameplay-wise as well. Games have come a very long way since the brutally hard games of my childhood. So it's great to be able to sit down and have an all-encompassing experience that you can get lost in, the story and all that stuff. And just take your mind off things for a little bit too. That's great. All right. Well, Jimmy Wong, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and for talking about this journey that you're on. I hope that this year turns out to be a very big one for you. The live action version of Mulan mm -hmm. is hopefully coming out later this year, right? Yes. That's the fingers crossed. <laughs> my fingers are crossed. I'm a big fan of Mulan. You play Ling, one of the trio of mm -hmm. soldiers who are, uh, you know, Mulan's pep squad. Her, yeah. you know, her best buds. Her, her, her wingmen. So, yeah. How did you approach this role? Who is he to you? Tell us a little bit about the character, and then let's talk about the story. Totally. So there are a lot of things that my character shares attribute wise from the original. He still is a romantic at heart. He's a bit clumsy. He has a lot of um, those aspects and that was reflected in the script when I first read it. So for me, it was really important to not 
because this movie is not the same as the original. The original was very slapsticky, had a lot of like big laugh out loud moments, tons of silliness. This movie still has comedy. It still has heart and humor and all that, but it's definitely trending towards the more serious side and focused on the action and the relationships between the characters and the father daughter relationship. And for me, the last thing I want to do as an actor, especially with a director that's as focused with as crystal clear of a vision as Nikki Caro, is take away from that vision by feeling selfish, that I need to make someone laugh or entertain or play the character in a way that is too much. Um, and so for me as an actor, a lot of my acting and a lot of my performance came down to really connecting with my squad mates, uh, connecting with the other supporting cast around me. And making sure that we were all vibing on that same level of energy and intensity and focus so that when we came to set, we were not coming as five individual soldiers that all had their own goals and all had their own characterizations in mind, but rather as a unit serving a larger purpose, which is fighting a war or assisting a character like Mulan. The movie is called Mulan after all. And in any kinds of movies like this, your character is not there to steal the spotlight. They are there to be a supporting character in every way. And the life and the feelings that you bring to that character, you want to make sure that when people watch it, they understand what the reason is for that character existing without having it on the nose, right? So for me, I really want to make sure I serve the story first and foremost. And I also serve the other actors in the scenes with me and gave as much as I can energy-wise to supporting Leo Fei, who plays Mulan, to make sure that I can be a part of her delivering the best performance she can and not taking away from that. You said you saw Mulan when it, the animated version when it came mm -hmm. out. What is the story of Mulan to you? So I didn't know the story growing up, but my grandma was someone that was really familiar with the story. She grew up in China. It was sort of a playground slash younger school thing, story, fable, whatever you want to call it, that was shared amongst them. And everyone knew who Mulan was. And so to me, I didn't really have that contextual information going into the movie. And I remember watching the movie with my parents in the theaters. And I was like, this is great. This is funny. It's cool. But I did remember my grandma's reaction leaving the theater, which was one of mixed disappointment and sort of, eh, why? Because to her, she was like, this is not the Mulan that I grew up learning about with the, all the fantastical, crazy elements and whimsicalness of a, you know, of a 90s Disney cartoon. And so I saw that reaction in her and that sort of tinged my feeling towards the original movie for a while as well. I sort of just went, you know what, I, I guess I don't like it either because it, it isn't what it's supposed to be, I guess, but I didn't really know what those words meant as a kid. I just sort of said it based on how my grandma reacted. And going forward in life, going to karaoke with friends, I realized how much that movie meant to people because I think the songs in Mulan, Reflection and I'll Make a Man Out of You might be the top, definitely in the top five all-time Disney classic favorites, I think, when it comes to singing songs and karaoke and just in general, best songs from, from, uh, from one of the classics. And realizing that, I got to open my ears a little more to the perspectives that I didn't hear growing up. And most of those came from young girls who felt really empowered by a princess that wasn't just a princess. She was a warrior, someone that fought for a reason and sacrificed her life, essentially, for the sake of her father's health and her family. And I realized later on, oh, wow, I didn't connect with Mulan, the character, so much because I didn't see myself in her but seeing how so many other people found that inspiration, especially other Asians and Asian Americans that I knew, helped me get a better understanding of the movie. And as I went into like 2016, 2017, when news of the remake first resurfaced, 
I got really excited as a result because I was like, yes, of all of the Disney movies to be remade, I think this is the perfect one. And in my head, going all the way back to what my grandma said, I was like, this is a great chance for them to redo the story and retell it in a way that may be more honest and more true and more updated. And I remember telling my grandma before she passed away that, you know, she was going to see me on the big screen. And she knew I was trying to be an actor. So I just sort of made that arbitrary promise to her. And I didn't realize that it would come full circle in such a serendipitous way that it would be a movie that we did watch together as a young, uh, when I was a young child. So the movie really does have a significant meaning to me. So if your grandmother could see this movie, she would be happy. I think so. I've seen the movie now, thanks to being at the premiere uh, before it was delayed. And it honestly brought a tear to my eyes, to people around me. You could hear the sniffles and the way it's told, the historical accuracy, the research and time that I know they put into every single inch and centimeter on that set. I guess I should say centimeter over inch because we did film it uh, not in the Americas. Um, okay. But yeah, I think this is a movie that I think so many people are going to be immensely proud of to share and to, and to revel in and to really feel represented in. It's not the only project you're doing this year. Now you've created an animation yourself, The Wish Dragon. And why don't you tell us what that's about? And I hope that comes out this year as well. Yeah, I hope so too. I didn't create it. I did create the voice for the character in it. One of the producers is Aaron Warner, who won a Oscar for Shrek. So very talented people behind the scenes here. And it's this beautiful story. Um, and it's in conjunction with the Chinese studio as well. So they really, again, we're going for cultural authenticity. And that to me is really important because there's nothing less I want to see than another caricature of an Asian on screen. I don't think you could ask any race in the world if they want to see a caricature of themselves on screen. And I'm definitely one of those people that don't want that either. And so this is a beautiful movie about a kid set in modern day Shanghai who stumbles upon a teapot. And inside the teapot is a wish dragon that is able to grant him three wishes. And it's kind of got that, you know, Aladdin vibe to it where this kid doesn't have much, but he's got a great heart and a great soul. And I play the voice of the kid. His name is Din. And we are joined by, again, an entirely Asian cast with some amazing, amazing talent on there. John Cho plays the dragon and Constance Wu plays my mother. We have voice talents across the spectrum. Another friend of mine, Jimmy O. Yang's in it. You might recognize him from Silicon Valley. So it's, it's a really beautiful story. The animation is top notch. It's superb. It's, it, it really makes you long for more movies like this when you watch it because it, to me, it's like, wow, I've never seen a place I visited like Shanghai like this in such crystal clear, beautiful animated forms before. And I, I, it makes me want more of that. So I know the tentative release date was set for this year. But again, given all the world circumstances, who actually knows what that's going to be? But I'm super, super hopeful it still comes out this year. I think it's a story that is timeless in and of itself and something that people are going to love. If there was a genie here who could give you a wish, what's your wish? <laughs> Oh boy, there's so many wishes. You know, at one point in my life, I had a wish that everyone could see every statistic ever. You could ask the, the world something and it would show it to you. So you would ask it, who are the most impoverished people in the United States? Or who is the person with the most money? Or what is the gender imbalance between this and this? And you would always have the exact facts precise to the point right in front of you. But I think that might drive people mad. Um, so I'm going to opt for a more easy wish, which is it's cheesy as hell, but I would love to erase ignorance. I would love for people to just see everything as it is and understand how they can actually create actionable and real change within their communities, all the ways from their families to their surrounding communities and cities. I, I think every human in the world wants to feel like they have purpose. 
And I think ignorance often is standing in the way of people finding what their true purpose and what their true longing in the world is. So if we can erase something like that, I think we can take huge strides towards being a more unified people. I have to tell you, I think that wish is harder than the first one. Statistics <laughs> are easy. Thanks again to Jimmy Wong for talking with me. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, be safe.